Thank you, Mo. Good morning, everyone. My name is Scott Grant, and I'm uh, one of the pastors and one of the elders here. It is my privilege to bring the word to you this morning as we continue our series, our Lenten series, which we are calling Suffering Servant, Conquering King. Now, stories are powerful. Jesus, of course, told stories. We call them parables. These were stories that he told of common life, but they connected somehow deeply to the stories of Israel. Now, we're going to look at one of those parables today. It's not one of his better-known parables, like, say, the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the sower. It's a lesser-known parable, but it is no less powerful for being lesser-known. It's in Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at, that, looking at that in a minute. So one of my favorite quirky little musicals is this musical called Man of La Mancha. And in Man of La Mancha, there's a prisoner who tells a story to other prisoners, And he tells the story of a man who's very confused about things. And this man thinks he's a noble knight. He's not a knight, of course, but that's what he thinks he is. And he goes around calling himself Don Quixote. So he's very confused about things and he is not altogether with it. The same might be said for the protagonist in the parable that Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 12. He comes off as not altogether with it. So what is it going to take to pry open our eyes so that we can behold the love of God? Look at the parable. Look at the parable today. I call it the parable of the crazy farmer because he comes off as not altogether with it. So series we're doing, Suffering Servant, Conquering King. These are texts from the Gospel of Mark. And what we're doing here is we're looking at texts that emphasize one or both of these aspects of Jesus, that of Suffering Servant and Conquering King. Our text today mostly emphasizes Jesus as the Suffering Servant, but also there is a hint of Jesus as the Conquering King. A word before we begin concerning parables Jesus has told most of his parables earlier in the Gospel of Mark. He has defined why he tells parables. And he tells parables in order to conceal truth from his enemies, but also to intrigue his followers and to reveal truth to them, especially as he tells them the deeper meanings of the parables as they ask him about it. Now, you you might ask, why does he want to conceal truth? Well, he wants to conceal truth because if his enemies understand him too well, they could bring him to a premature demise. Basically, he tells parables earlier in the Gospel of Mark because he's not ready to die yet. Now, this particular parable, now we're moving closer to the end. Jesus is facing down his enemies in Jerusalem. Therefore, the meaning of the parable is closer to the surface. And that's good for us because it makes us more accessible. So the context of Mark chapter 12 is obviously Mark chapter 11, and there we see that Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. He has journeyed with his disciples from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south. Now he is in Jerusalem proper. He is walking around in the temple, so the temple then forms the backdrop for this parable, and he is confronted by his enemies, that being the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. 
All right, let's get into it. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and, they, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. So uh, as with many of the parables, this is a retelling of an old story. It's a retelling of an old story with a new twist. That's what Jesus does with many of the old stories of Israel. He tells them again, but he adds new twists to them. This particular parable is based on Isaiah's song of the vineyard, and we see that in Isaiah chapter 5. It's a song about the Lord's love for Israel and Israel's rejection of him. So Jesus is telling that story again. And we see in Isaiah chapter 5 that it's called a love song. So indeed, that's what this is. This is a parable, the parable of the crazy farmer, as I call it, but it is also a love song. Now, Isaiah 5 helps us understand the meaning of what's going on here, in addition to a few other Old Testament texts. So, who does the vineyard owner represent? The vineyard owner represents God. What about the vineyard? The vineyard represents Israel, the people of God. How about the tenants? The tenants represent the leaders of Israel, the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. What about the fruit? Well, God expects fruit from Israel. That is good deeds, good behavior, a relationship with him, good deeds that emerge from a relationship with him, fruit for the sake of the world. So what about the servants? The servants represent the prophets of God. And God has sent multiple prophets through the years to Israel, calling Israel to repent so that Israel would return to him and bear fruit for the sake of the world. What about the son? What about the beloved son? Well, that has already been identified in the gospel of Mark earlier. Mark has identified Jesus as the son of God. That is the final king the ultimate king of Israel destined to rule over the world. So these are the players involved in this particular parable, and we understand that from Isaiah. So let's think about the parable now. What's going on, okay? You've got this vineyard owner. He goes to a different country, and he sends all of these servants, and each servant gets mistreated, and some of them get killed, and yet he continues to send servant after servant after servant. And all of these get mistreated and some of them get killed. So, and, and now we're reading this and now we read that the vineyard owner has sent all his servants, except he's got one left. He's got a beloved son who's more than a servant. And he says, okay, here's what I'm gonna do now. I'm going to send to these people my beloved son. And we read that and we say, are you nuts? 
We've seen what's gone on so far in this story. We know what's going to happen. Don't you know, vineyard owner, what these people are going to do to your son? He says, they will respect my son. And we say, what planet are you living on? He comes off as crazy, as delusional, reckless. What's he doing? Comes off as not altogether with it. So uh, put yourself in the shoes of the vineyard owner, okay? You are the vineyard owner and you have a beloved son. You've seen what these people have done to your servants. Now what are you going to do? If I have a beloved son, he is getting nowhere near these savages. And yet, the vineyard owner sends his son. So some people today think of God along the lines of an absent vineyard owner. Okay, maybe you got things going and maybe he's got some kind of thing happening here, but he's checked out long ago. In fact, some people think of God as so absent as to think of him as non-existent. Therefore, they think, well, okay, I can do as I please. And if you were to challenge them concerning their own sovereignty, if you were to challenge them and say, well, maybe God might expect something from you, Oh, they would tell you to get out of their business. And some people are like that. And there are some people, if you are insistent about their, you know, their life and that maybe they have something to, some kind of responsibility to God, and if you get in their way, they're going to push you out of the way. They might mistreat people who get in the way of their particular purposes in which they want to accomplish their dreams and their aspirations, and no one is going to stand in their way. And they're going to mistreat people. Some people are like that. So is God absent? What does the parable teach? God is not absent. God is hopeful. He is relentlessly hopeful. He is not giving up. He keeps sending servant after servant after servant, prophet after prophet after prophet. He was patient with Israel he is patient with us. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But let's face it. If the vineyard owner represents God, then God comes off as reckless, sending your son into this world, that comes off as not altogether with it. Now in Don Quixote, the prisoner tells this story to the other prisoners, but this story has the effect regarding the characters in the story of transforming everyone. It's the story of a delusional man who thinks he's a noble knight, but he's not, of course, but in the story itself, the characters are transformed by the delusional love of this man who thinks he's a knight. Especially transformed is this character by the name of Aldonza, who is a barmaid and a prostitute, and yet Don Quixote sees her as this beautiful, noble princess. 
And he's willing to do anything for her, lay down his life for her, fight great battles for her. And he calls her Dulcinea, which means my little sweet one. And she is completely, uh, 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 at first she is put off by all of this, but eventually his love gets through and she is completely won over by the love of Don Quixote, which is of course delusional. Wow. Well, we got a story here. We got a parable here of a delusional farmer. Maybe that's what it takes. What can pry open our eyes so that we can behold the love of God? Maybe this kind of a story can do it. The parable of the crazy farmer. What do we see? This horrendous evil brings forth lavish beauty. Horrendous evil on earth brings forth lavish beauty from heaven. It brings forth God's son. Okay, so the vineyard owner, back to the parable. The vineyard owner sends his son. What do you think the tenants are going to do with the son? He sends the son to collect some of the fruit. He's protected this vineyard. He's taking care of this vineyard. He's taking care of all these people. Just a little bit of fruit. How about that? I'm going to send you my son. What do you think they're going to do with his son? Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So here's what's going on. The tenants assume that the vineyard owner has died, and the son, being the heir, is going to take over the vineyard. And so what do they do? They kill the son, assuming then that they can take possession of the vineyard. But it's not enough simply for them to kill the son. They also throw him out of the vineyard and leave his body to rot. They shame him. They kill him and they shame him. And we ask, what more could the vineyard owner have done? He reached out time and time again, prophet after prophet. Finally, he sends his son. Well, talking about God being sending the prophets and the vineyard owners sending the servants, sending his son. What more could he have done? What more did he have to give? He had nothing left to give because he gave the best. He sent his son. So what will the vineyard owner do? Well, he will destroy the tenants. They've made their choice. What's happening in Jesus' world at this particular time? The chief priests and the elders and the scribes are conspiring against Jesus. They have deemed him not fit to live. They're conspiring against him to put him to death. So they represent the tenants. They want the vineyard for themselves. They want the land of Israel and the people of Israel for their own narrow-minded, corrupt, and violent purposes. So Jesus appealing to them on the one hand is also issuing, issuing them a warning on the other hand. He says, if you keep on going like this, if you proceed with your machinations, then God is going to destroy you. Later, Mark chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus is standing in front of the temple and says, behold, not one stone will be left upon another. He's predicting the destruction of the temple, in fact, the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what came to pass in 70 AD, when God raised up the Roman armies, and the Roman armies leveled the temple and leveled 
all of Jerusalem as well. But Jesus is saying that God is going to reconstitute the Israel of God around his followers. First of all, his apostles and then other followers of him. And they are the others to whom the vineyard is given. So who killed Jesus? Who killed God's beloved son? The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, yes. The Roman governor, yes. The Jews who cried out, crucify him, yes. The Roman soldiers who put the nails into him and crucified him, yes, of course. Anyone else? Yeah? You and me, all of us, all humans, right? It was because of our sins, because of our rejection of God, that the beloved son of God was crucified. Listen to what the apostle Paul says as he is articulating the gospel in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So will God then destroy us? By all rights, he should. But here's the amazing thing that happens. Instead of destroying us for killing his son, he uses the death of his son to save us. Now that comes off as not altogether with it. And yet, that's what God does. He uses the death of his son in order to save us. And then he sends us back into the world to serve his purposes. Now that's also amazing. We, responsible for the death of God's son, are sent back into the world to serve the purposes of God. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter eight, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? and that has to do with the new creation. But before that, he gives us the world so that we can serve his purposes in it. This is a love with which we are not familiar. However, as we open our eyes to the parable, it is a love with which we can become more familiar. Now to cap the parable, Jesus refers the scribes and the chief priests and the elders to Psalm 118. Let's look at this, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus here obviously is talking about himself as the stone He's talking about the chief priests and the scribes and the elders as the builders. And Jesus is the odd stone out. He doesn't fit into their purposes. So he is rejected. Nevertheless, Jesus is also predicting his resurrection here. He says he's going to become the cornerstone. That is the integral stone in this new building that God is doing. And that would be, of course, the new temple, which is not made with brick and mortar, but it's made of flesh and blood and the spirit inhabits us and we are the new temple that Jesus began building all those centuries ago and he's continuing to build it today as he continues to add more stones to it, so to speak. 
Look at the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, 3, as we move into verse 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Yes, he died, that he was buried, yes, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He is the suffering servant and the conquering king. Suffering in his death, conquering in his resurrection. So, is it not marvelous in our eyes what God has done in Jesus Christ? So, if, uh, if you have a life, and you do, and uh, you have certain purposes for your life, know this, according to the parable, that you cannot fit Jesus into your purposes. And so much teaching that passes for biblical will show you or will try to show you how you can fit Jesus into your purposes, how you can get Jesus to endorse your purposes. It's got to be the other way around. We fit our lives into the purposes of Jesus. But here's the thing. You have to believe that God's purposes for your life are better than your purposes. How do you know that? Look at the parable. What do you see in the parable? You see love that you see nowhere else. You see a God that you can trust to achieve something in your life that you can't imagine. It might be hard, it might be difficult, you might ache for many months and years, but God's purposes are better than your purposes. Look at the parable. Is it not marvelous in your eyes? God's purposes for your life are better, way better. Now, when I was working through this parable in my study, and that sentence formed in my mind, God's purposes for our lives are better, way better, I took a sigh as I was thinking about that, and I looked up, and I saw this wall calendar that I have. And this calendar features a different photo of our two daughters for each month. So I looked up at the calendar, it was March, and there was this beautiful photo of my two daughters. And I was taken back to a dinner that I had with my father many years ago. I was about 40 years old, and uh, I was unmarried at the time. And my father said to me, one of my biggest regrets is what a good father you would have been. And I had a response for him that was immediate. It was instinctive. Almost without thinking, I said to him, the story's not over yet. Hmm? The story's not over yet. Always remember and never forget when you do not yet see that God's purposes for your life are better than your purposes, that the story's not over yet. The builders who rejected the stone thought that the story was over, but it wasn't. The stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone. So uh, not long after my dinner with my father, I met this woman, a woman by the name of Karen, and uh, I kind of liked her, and she kind of liked me. And we started spending a little bit of time together and you know how these things go and one thing led to another and lo and behold, we got married. 
And lo and behold, I became a father for the first time at age 46. I became a father again for the second time at age 49. Now I have to tell you, when you're a young man and you're thinking that maybe you'd like to be married and you're thinking maybe you'd like to have some kids, at least for me, I wasn't thinking, oh, you know what? I'd really like to wait until 46 to have my first child. Not what I was thinking. And yet, that was God's purpose for me. So my father died about a year and a half ago at the age of 94. He lived long enough to meet his two granddaughters and to watch them grow up to be beautiful young women. One of my father's biggest regrets in life was absolutely obliterated. Now, I have to tell you, one of my biggest regrets is that my mother, who died at the age of 61 of cancer, never got to meet her mother-in-law and never got to hold her granddaughters. My mother never said this. She had three boys. I think she secretly wanted at least one girl. And she never had a girl. She had three sons. She never got to meet her daughter-in-law. She never got to meet her granddaughters. But I have to remind myself, God's purposes are better than my purposes. Way better. I have to remind myself that the story isn't over yet. Death? Story's not over yet. The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in my eyes. Here's the photo that was on the calendar that I looked up at. Christina on the left, Bethany on the right. This was a year ago. It may look like Bethany just got married. No, no. She was in a show last year. She's in a show right now too, by the way. She was in a show last year and that was a picture that was taken after the show. Well, I'm sure you have some regrets. I'm sure you have some dreams. I'm sure you have some purposes. You gotta believe that God knows everything better than you do. So how do you think the scribes and the elders and the chief priests respond to Jesus' parable? Let's look at that, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They perceived that Jesus told the parable against them. Are they right? That's not what Mark says right at the beginning in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. He says that Jesus told the parable to them, not against them, but to them. If he told the parable to them, he told it for them. He told it for their benefit so they could see what they're doing, so they could see love perhaps that they haven't seen before, so that they could repent and accept Jesus as the Messiah. But of course, they didn't do that. They couldn't see. They were blind. So they seek to arrest Jesus, but they are afraid of the crowd at this particular moment. Nevertheless, they will be back. It is not marvelous in their eyes. 
Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you invited him into your life? Have you accepted the forgiveness that God has for you in his beloved son who sacrificed his life for you? If you haven't done so yet, I urge you to do so. See the love that is here, but also hear the warning. There is a warning within this parable. And it says something like this. We are all one day going to stand before God. All of us are going to stand before God. And the key question on that day will be something like this. What did you do with my son? Did you accept him and the forgiveness that I have for you in him? Or did you reject him? The answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny. So I urge you, if you have not done so yet, invite Christ into your life. In Man of La Mancha, this prisoner tells a story about this man who thinks he's Don Quixote, and within the story, the characters are transformed. But he's telling the stories to the prisoners, and the prisoners hearing this story about delusional love, they are also transformed, these hardened prisoners. And as the writer of, or the author of this particular story is led off to his trial, they all sing, all the prisoners sing the famous song, To Dream the Impossible Dream. What can pry open our eyes so that we can behold the love of God? Look at the parable. Look at the parable of the crazy farmer. Is there an ache in your heart today for some reason? Probably. We all ache. Does that ache have anything to do with rejection? Have you been rejected in some way? Does that hurt? Remember, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone so that rejection in our lives becomes a sacred doorway. Rejection becomes a sacred doorway into the presence of God so that you pour out all of this pain you have because you've been rejected to God and then you're able to receive his love in a deeper way. It becomes a sacred doorway into the presence of God and also into the purposes of God as, you, as he sends you out back into the world to fulfill his purposes, not yours. So, invite this love, invite this crazy love into the aching abyss of your heart. Would you please stand? Uh, our Heavenly Father, we are earthbound in our thinking, at least I am, I know that, and um, I, 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 I see this, I preach it, and yet somehow there's something that holds me back that I can't see. So we need your spirit. Lord, grant us your spirit to behold this otherworldly love. Open our eyes to see the love that is encased within this parable. Please do that for us. And I think maybe it helps sometimes to use different words for it, to understand it. If we just keep talking love and love and love, sometimes it just doesn't connect anymore. But maybe there's a new word. Maybe there's a new angle. Maybe we see something that looks like it's reckless. 
something that looks like it's delusional. Uh, of course, you're not delusional, but it seems that way to us as we look at this kind of love. Of course, you're not reckless, but it seems that way to us as we look at this kind of love. Open us up to that. And as we sing this last song about your love, would you open us up to it? And now for just a minute or so, would you just stand and reflect and be silent? If it helps you to just open up your hands, that can be a helpful thing to do. And just reflect on the love of God.